Hi everyone, uh, we will start in around seven minutes. Uh, feel free to check out in the chat the paper we will be discussing. It's an open source nature paper, so you should be able to just access it. And uh, on top is the presentation, the slide presentation that our guest speaker, Dr. Han, will be using today. So uh, we will start in a few minutes. We'll ping people in and Dr. Sean will arrive shortly. Thank you. Oh, yeah, and feel free to share the room um, if you think there's something interesting uh, for friends. Um, yep, we will be start soon. And um, yeah, I hope you find this interesting. I think it's really interesting um, because with these kind of work, we can assess in the future um, also, hopefully, if interventions are actually helping uh, and we see it in these real molecular changes. Um, so I think this work is really interesting. And yeah, welcome. And uh, we will start in around four minutes. Thank you. Yeah, um, hi Nazil, hi everyone. We will be starting soon. The paper's open source is posted in the chat and uh, feel free to check it out and we will start on top of the hour. Um, so in around three minutes we will start and um, Dr. Han will be talking about um, this really interesting work of hers um so yeah and check out the slides if you want to get a head start <laughs> to ask questions feel free to ask questions raise your hand or uh, ask them in the chat and um, yeah because it makes discussion so much more interesting if um, people actively participate i think and we will start shortly thank you
Hi, how are you? Hey there, I'm doing well, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yes, perfect. Awesome. Mm -hmm. How are you doing, Katerina? I'm great. Um, let me just, just remind me again how I pronounce your name right, because Sure. That's what I made most fun of in my family is that <laughs> I pronounce everything wrong in English. My kids, kids constantly make fun of me. <laughs> uh, no sweat. It's kind of you to ask. So Sage, like age, I guess, with an S, Sage Han. Perfect. Sage Han. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> sure thing. How's your day so far? How was your week? My week's been kind of nuts, to tell you the truth, but um, but it's almost over, so that's the good part. Yes, and next week will be hopefully, well, a different type of stress. <laughs> yes, indeed. A, a kind of stress I'm looking forward to personally, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, me too. It's good to mix the stress up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I'm ready for a different kind of stress for a few days. Yeah, me too. Um, do you? Yeah, I enjoy the holiday season. But then after the holiday season, like with New Year's and everything, I'm kind of over the winter, but then it still takes so long here in New York. <laughs> so. It's so true that you kind of, I anyway take on this mindset of oh once the holidays are over winter's over but in truth it's kind of just getting started exactly that's when it gets really cold <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and especially up up where you are we were in boston the last couple of years and that was i mean i'm from virginia so that was a whole different level of cold yeah, it is. It's um so I was I moved two times of the years first for my PhD. Um and there my first almost year was in North Carolina at Duke and then the rest oh. of my PhD at NYU. It was kind of very cold, but then I moved back to you know my home country, Portugal. In, and then after years, I came back for for my postdoc to Boston area, um, oh. like Boston and Cape Cod. Ooh. And it was the worst winter. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we had, like, I built up a lab at uh, the Marine Biological Laboratory, and we collaborated with a lab at MGH. So. Oh, very cool. That was... <laughs> winter when they had to build tunnels through the snow in Boston. Yeah. Oh, that winter. Yeah, that, that was, was a shock. <laughs> okay, I won't be staying. Yeah. yeah. People said, oh, in Cape Cod, it doesn't even snow that much because the ocean will like um, keep things moderate. And it was like every second week of blizzard. <laughs> that... <laughs> That year was crazy. I remember that. Um, and we visited Cape Cod a couple times, uh, never in the summer, which is probably the best time, obviously, to visit it. But we would go for these winter weekends. And it was beautiful and lovely and charming, but frigid cold. Yeah. 
I yeah, in the summer it gets very crowded. Like I like the fall. Fall would be pretty. Yeah. yeah. Just the drive there would be pretty. Yeah, fall is really pretty. I think the whole like east coast, maybe not too far up no. But yeah, I think we can slowly start. Sorry for chatting here. I keep telling that story, people, everyone that wants to hear <laughs> people that come here often will roll their eyes. Oh God, she comes with the horrible winter again. <laughs> it was memorable. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so welcome um, and um, welcome everyone to Science Society. And before we start, I'll give a short introduction so uh, the audience gets to know you a little bit and um, then we continue with like a short interview and then we go right into your amazing and interesting uh, research. So uh, Dr. Sa Sage Han is an associate professor in the clinical psychology program at Old Dominion University. And um, she, um, Dr. Han earned her doctorate in clinical psychology from, from Virginia Commonwealth University. And there she um, had her uh, F31 funded um, funding where she did research examining biological and psychological processes underlying PTSD alcohol use comorbidity. And uh, through her award, she received training in behavioral and statistical genetics at uh, the Virginia Institute for Psychiatry and Behavioral Genetics. And uh, when she completed her T32 funded uh, postdoctoral training at, at Boston University School of Medicine and the National Center for PTSD in Boston, um, she expanded her line of research through advanced training in statistical methods and the analysis of multi-ormic and neurobiological biomarkers. And um, she has a really kind of, yeah, a really multidisciplinary um, skill set in that she gained through all this training in traumatic stress phenotyping, statistical genetics and um, peripheral biomarkers. Um, and um, she continues this type of interdisciplinary approach um, uh, in her research, and um, which is really interesting because, you know, a lot of disorders are a mix of different disorders and um, the skill set really helps with that and I don't think many people have that kind of mix of skill set so and um, this kind of led uh, to I guess to the research we are talking today so thank you and welcome. Thank you so much thanks for the introduction. I, I am an assistant professor currently at ODU, but one day I hope to be an associate professor. Oh, I'm so sorry I read <laughs> Oh, no, that's okay. Oh, but, but thank, thank you. you, such a lovely introduction. You have faith that I'll get tenured in, oh, in of course. a handful of years. <laughs> of course you will. And um, so we usually start with an interview to get like 
different kind of paths of how people became researchers. And um, so our first question is, when did you realize um, that you kind of developed this um, interest and curiosity in doing research or becoming a scientist? Was it something you always wanted to do? Maybe you took a class or a teacher was amazing or a professor um, or you, some people said they read a book and then wanted to go into the, you know, the field they are in. Is there maybe a story um, that you could tell us about your path to becoming a scientist? Thank you. Sure. Um, geez. Well, so I did not know I wanted to go into science for most of my life, but I knew that I was always interested in trauma. Um, in high school, I had the opportunity to go to Uganda for a couple of months to install uh, solar panels um, onto homes and orphanages and hospitals. And it was just a, a fabulous experience that kind of sparked the kind of trauma interest and clinical uh, part of my my interests. And then, you know, I was maybe 15 or 16 at the time. And then when I ended up going to college, I went going, okay, I'm going to be either a therapist or a social worker. And the more classes I took, the more those interests grew. But I also found myself really interested in some of my biology classes. Um, so even then during my post-bac experience, I was working with my, who became my graduate mentor, Dr. Ananda Amstatter. Um, she's just this really prolific force of nature in the post-traumatic stress world. And um, in working with her, when my intention was, I just want to have enough research to get into clinical psych programs, have a beefy CV, and then I'd probably thought I'd either be a professor or, or uh, go on to clinical work, but I didn't think research would be my, my full bag. But working with her, I just fell in love with it. And in particular, she was, um, she's also a clinical psychologist by training, but worked at the Virginia Institute for Behavioral and Psychiatric Genetics. And so she had a lot of access to, to genetic data and um, allowed me to kind of get in on that training early on. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. So it all went from there, basically, is to made so, kind of long, but short it is. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm so glad uh, you got to meet her and find your passion. And that's a wonderful story. We need more of, yeah, I think we need more uh, teachers and professors like that are so inspiring, I think. Uh, so more people are excited about doing this type of work. Um, so yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> Say thanks to her because that's because <laughs> speaking right now. So. <laughs> no kidding. She she is such a wonderful mentor, and I think part of that too is just allowing people experiences with research um, early on. That was, you know, I kind of got rolled up my sleeves and got elbow deep in the process from from an early time, which has made it easier to progress, but also formed interest 
early on too. So yeah, she's just, she's a force in my life that I'm deeply grateful for. Yeah, that's wonderful. I also think always it's so sad when in some labs students get to just do very boring stuff like washing the dishes in the lab or, you know, like something that kind of repels them from continuing because most students we get, I don't know how it is for you, they want to go into medical um, training And mm -hmm. I feel like some students, if you give them a really interesting project, they kind of also consider then staying in science. So I think it's really important to, from beginning, to get like some interesting project. So that's wonderful to hear. Absolutely. And um, yeah, and the second question is, um, is there maybe a background story about, um, for this project, like, Was it really hard to get funding for? Was it easy? You know, was it straight? Is there, yeah, is there an interesting small kind of background story how it came about and, you know, how easy or hard it was to kind of get it funded and get it off the ground? So thank mm -hmm. you. Sure. I mean, on my end, it was remarkably easy because I was lucky enough to have access to all these fabulous data sets through my uh, postdoctoral mentor, uh, Dr. Erica Wolf, who's another just fabulous researcher and mentor. Um, so she had done all the hard work to get, get the funding. Um, and I then had the fun of just kind of playing around. But the research I'll be presenting on today didn't start necessarily with the research question that I'll be presenting. I was interested in looking at essentially kind of health disparities and how various forms of psychopathology or mental illness influenced biomarkers of um, aging and lifespan and risk and how those basically might be um, moderated or mediated by various health disparities that we see. So uh, there were data available, kind of census data on various socioeconomic uh, factors that related to health disparities. And so I was running these models and frankly, none of them were really panning out, but we kept finding this really strong association, uh, not with any of the health disparity markers, but between externalizing psychopathology, which I'm I'm happy to get into and will get into in my talk and this biomarker of basically risk for early death. And so it was kind of from there that new research questions formed. And so, yeah, it has a little bit of an evolution, this, this research project. And again, is um, a result of a lot of other people's really hard and fabulous work to get the funding and the data. Yeah, perfect. Um... Yeah, that's uh, wonderful to hear always, I think, and really interesting for also for a general audience that does not in research to hear these kind of stories, how projects come about and um, people participating. So thanks for sharing that. And the stage is yours uh, for everyone. The slides are uh, pinned on top of the room. Feel free to access them while um, Dr. Han is talking. And yeah, thank you so much. Perfect.
Thank you. Um, and I just, I do want to thank you for inviting me to give this talk, Katarina. And for those of you in the virtual audience for taking the time out of your busy schedules to hear about this work. I'm excited to be here, be giving this talk. Um, so as, as we just discussed, I'm currently an assistant professor at Old Dominion University, which is in Virginia. But the work I'll be presenting represents some of the work I conducted during my postdoctoral fellowship at Boston University School of Medicine and the National Center for PTSD at VA Boston, where I remain a, a affiliated. So on slide two, you just see kind of the title screenshot there of a particular research project of mine that I'll be discussing, which was recently published in Translational Psychiatry. Uh, the principal investigator on this work, Dr. Wolf, does own some stock in Illumina, but other than that, there are no disclosures. If you take a look at slide three, we'll just jump right in. Uh, so trauma exposure is highly prevalent. Unfortunately, most people will experience trauma at some point in their lives, with the majority of people experiencing multiple traumatic events. If you go to the next slide, this slide is supposed to represent the fact that trauma exposure is heterogeneous, so it takes many different forms. And different types of trauma exposure are associated with varying degrees of conditional risk for trauma-related outcomes. For example, trauma exposures that are more interpersonal in nature, sexual or physical assaults, childhood abuse, those types of interpersonal traumas are associated with greater risk for PTSD, as well as other trauma-related outcomes. Moving to the next slide, trauma exposure broadly is associated with a variety of mental, physical, and psychosocial health outcomes. Here are just a few of many, many examples listed on the slide. You know, depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, certainly interpersonal problems, marriages, family life can experience a lot of disruption, suicidality, and then uh, physical health comorbidities, heart disease, chronic pain, obesity. We'll be getting more into this. Looking at slide six, this is all to really just emphasize the fact that trauma is a transdiagnostic risk factor for psychiatric and physical health conditions. And better understanding the processes by which trauma affects both the mind and the body has important implications really for the majority of the population. Slide seven, just to give an example here of this kind of mind-body transdiagnostic nature of trauma, we'll consider for a moment post-traumatic stress disorder, right, or PTSD. PTSD is often regarded as the signature disorder, so to speak, related to trauma, uh, such that exposure to a trauma is an actual required diagnostic criterion for that diagnosis. About 
upwards of 9% of people will meet criteria for PTSD at some point in their lives, with the highest conditional risk accounted for by those having experienced multiple traumatic events. So we see this cumulative effect of trauma, whereby the more trauma someone experiences, the more at risk they are for negative mental and physical health outcomes. There's also a lot of research to suggest that just having a prior history of trauma in and of itself is a risk factor for subsequent trauma. So kind of trauma predicting trauma, further exacerbating risk for greater cumulative PTSD and PTSD symptom severity. There's a lot of strong research out there, meta-analytic studies certainly, that have found evidence that having a PTSD diagnosis significantly increases someone's risk for a variety of chronic diseases, including certainly but not limited to cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases, neurocognitive, autoimmune, musculoskeletal, the list unfortunately goes on and on. If you'll direct your attention to slide eight, it's likely that some of the underlying processes explaining the link between PTSD and chronic health disease also explain the known link between PTSD and premature death. So there's a lot of research out there uh, uh, connecting the two. And in fact, the association's not exclusive to PTSD. It extends to other forms of trauma-related psychopathology. All psychopathology can be trauma-related, right? Going back to that transdiagnostic risk factor. Uh, but specifically, there are numerous psychiatric diagnoses spanning both the internalizing and externalizing spectra that have been established as risk factors for premature death. When I say internalizing psychopathology, I mean depression, anxiety, some of the mental health disorders that manifest um, certainly behaviorally, but have these real cognitive components, um, this kind of inward nature to them versus externalizing, which would be like substance use disorders, antisocial personality, ADHD, um, mental health disorders that have these real kind of impulse control or rather decreased impulse control when it comes to behavior. So across the board, really the takeaway here, right, is that internalizing and externalizing psychopathology has been associated with uh, premature death, which really just means kind of death before one might expect based off of their chronological age. PTSD is pulled out separately here on the slide because PTSD is a bit of a unique mental health disorder in that it's really highly comorbid with both internalizing and externalizing disorders. So we often don't group it with one or the other, but um, at least in, in our group when I, where I was on fellowship, we look at all three of these constructs in tandem. I'm moving along to slide nine, if you wanna follow along with me. Um, so the consistency of this association across psychiatric diagnoses suggests that there may be some common biological pathways that link psychiatric stress to adverse health outcomes and even premature mortality. Biomarkers of disease risk and even biomarkers of early death 
are critical tools for not only assessing risk, but tracking change over time, gauging intervention efficacy, uh, as well as informing what biological mechanisms link psychiatric stress to poor health. And the primary biomarker I'll be talking about today is an index of cellular or biological aging. Uh, and it's indexed from DNA methylation data. So I first wanna take a brief moment to review why genes even matter when it comes to understanding the mental and the physical health effects of trauma. So if you wanna hop ahead to slide 11, we'll use the signature disorder related to trauma, PTSD, as an example. There's certainly ample research to suggest that both genes and environment are etiological determinants of PTSD. Uh, PTSD is moderately heritable. All of this really meaning that trauma exposure is a necessary but not sufficient criterion for PTSD. And as the research tells us, genes and environment interact to influence the development of PTSD. On slide 12, this is supposed to represent that, uh, to summarize a, a whole literature which suggests that actually trauma exposure itself, as well as trauma-related psychopathology, so including, but again, not limited to PTSD, are associated with genetic factors. There are a lot of different ways to look at how genes influence mental health and behavior, but the focus of this talk today, as I've said, is on DNA methylation. And DNA methylation is really just one step in the process underlying how genes can affect mental health. So what is DNA methylation exactly? Well, for the purposes of this talk, I'm gonna offer in a moment here a metaphor. It's not a perfect one, uh, but it's meant to hopefully help those in the audience who may be less familiar with DNA methylation analyses to kind of wrap their heads around it conceptually. So on slide 13 here, you see a double helix, right? We all have DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, comes in the form of a double helix, like you see here on the slide, and it carries the instructions for life. So for development, functioning, growth, reproduction, uh, all things essential to all living things. And genes are sections of DNA that are in charge of different functions, like making proteins. On slide 14, I want to, you to think about a gene as a door, again, for the purpose of this kind of metaphor. So we as humans have about 20 to 25,000 doors lined up along our DNA. Going to slide 15, how these doors function is dependent on a variety of factors that can certainly be influenced by the environment. So trauma exposure, no doubt. Um, nutrition, physical exercise, uh, in utero experiences, pollution. I mean, basically this idea that the environmental factors can influence the way one's genes work is called epigenetics. So ep one epigenetic mechanism that can modify the function of a gene is called DNA methylation. 
DNA methylation is really just a biological process by which a methyl group is added to a DNA molecule, thereby affecting the gene's function and expression. So I'm gonna invite you to think of DNA methylation as padlocks, right, that can be added to a door. And then if you go to slide 16, just a visual representation of where the DNA methylation occurs, so where the padlocks are located, right, uh, are called CPG sites. This is an abbreviation. It's just meant to distinguish the linear sequence by which a cytosine and a guanine base are paired by a phosphate group. So on uh, slide 17, it'll just carry us through to the end of this metaphor here, which is to say that just as a padlock regulates the use of a door, DNA methylation regulates gene expression and gene function. And for those of you in the audience who are experts in this area, um, then you'll certainly know that not all DNA methylation markers are functional in this way. Um, so just my little caveat there, right? Researchers are continuing to explore this link between methylation and expression, but this is kind of simply put a little bit of the biological pipeline that hopefully proves helpful here. So the research I'll be presenting on today focuses on the padlock specifically. All right, so looking at, page, at slide rather 18, there was a recently developed DNA methylation biomarker of time to death that Lou and colleagues very um, witting, wittingly named Grim Age, um, and it might prove useful for improving our understanding of what biological mechanisms link psychiatric stress to poor health. So Grimage is derived by using a Cox regression model that regresses time to death due to all cause mortality on chronological age, sex, and DNA methylation-based surrogate biomarkers previously associated with lifespan. So basically as a step one, what Lou and her colleagues did was they looked at the padlocks, so to speak, right, uh, to see which DNA methylation markers predicted these blood-based molecules that are previously known to be associated with lifespan. So inflammation just being one example, right? And then they, from that, created these DNA methylation surrogate biomarkers and that data was used to compute a Grimage score. So it's basically an algorithm that's been established to accurately predict time to death based on biological data in previous data. So if you go to slide 19, this will maybe be a, a helpful way to additionally understand this. So you can take this Grimage score. So the score that's based on DNA methylation data that's been used to predict time to death and if you regress that score onto chronological age, you get this residual variable that's used to index mortality risk relative to what would be expected based on chronological age. So for example, if your grim age, so your biological age, suggests that you are biologically 55, but your chronological age is 50, you've been living, you've been living for 50 years, so your biological age is higher than your chronological age, this would suggest that you have accelerated biological aging 
or rather shortened time to death. This is a risk factor. Um, conversely, if you're 40 and your grim age score is 37, you'd have decelerated biological aging or maybe prolonged time to death. This would be an indicator of kind of this protective biology that's happening. Uh, for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to call this residual variable that reflects the difference, like, right, between grim age and your chronological age, whether it's accelerated or decelerated. I'm going to be referring to this as age adjusted grim age moving forward. Slide 20 shows some information on the methodology that was used in the research study. First, our first aim was really to test associations between age-adjusted grimage and psychopathology. And we did this using two independent cohorts of trauma-exposed veterans from VA Boston. The two cohorts had really similar methodologies. It allowed us to combine them into a bigger cohort. Um, we used factor analysis to calculate scores on higher order internalizing and externalizing psychopathology factors. And actually, I'm realizing, sorry, I just gave a talk last week on a different research project uh, where we did combine these cohorts. In this study, we did not combine them. We wanted to keep them separate because we wanted to see if our results replicated. So my apologies. We didn't combine these cohorts. Rather, we looked at them separately to see, could we find our results in two cohorts, kind of thereby even further bolstering our confidence that what we were finding was, you know, true. Okay. So let's see, DNA was isolated from peripheral blood. Uh, processing of the DNA methylation data followed standard procedures set forth by the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium. We calculated ancestry-based principal components, so kind of correcting for DNA-based ancestry, ancestral differences. We also calculated relative proportion of six types of white blood cells. These were estimated from the DNA methylation data themselves and were included in the analyses where age-adjusted grimage was the dependent variable because DNA methylation can change a lot depending on cell type. So you have to control for that or it's good practice to control for that. Looking at slide 21, I'll note that our second, so we were first interested in seeing, okay, does psychopathology, we know psychopathology predicts and is a risk factor for premature death. So now we have this biomarker of biological risk, right, for premature death. So we want to look at does psychopathology predict that? And then the second aim was to see and are there these neurobiological and health correlates related to grim age, just as an extra validation? So if grim age is this biomarker of time to death, we would expect it to be highly associated with other biomarkers of health risk and disease. So that's what we wanted to look at. And to do so, we looked at some age-related neurocognitive performance using neuropsych tests of inhibitory control and verbal memory. We had some MRI data that was used to measure cortical thickness. We also created a factor score to reflect metabolic syndrome. 
And I do want to take a brief moment to talk about the technology that was used to assay some of the peripheral or, or just blood-based markers of inflammation and neuropathology. And that's called single molecule array or SAMOA technology. So point your attention to slide 22 there, the next slide. This is really a state-of-the-art technology that's led to the ability to precisely measure biomarkers <clears throat> pardon me, at very, very low levels. So there's some really cool research that has come out showing that neuropathology biomarkers measured using Samoa technology have been used to successfully predict Alzheimer's disease among individuals prior to any symptom onset. So I really want to emphasize this point, right? What this means is that this technology allows for the early detection of biomarkers of health risk before any onset of symptoms. So this obviously has very profound clinical implications for early risk detection and possibly prevention. <coughs> Excuse me. So going to slide 23, we'll just jump right into the results. We found that externalizing psychopathology, so again, this was a factor score that was created by including symptom severity for alcohol use disorder, non-alcohol use disorder, substance use, um, so basically any other substance use disorder besides alcohol use, uh, I think antisocial personality symptom severity, and those were the indicators to create this externalizing factor score. And we found that it significantly predicted age-adjusted Grimage in both cohorts. And that PTSD predicted age-adjusted Grimage in one, but not both cohorts. On slide 24, you'll see that we found age-adjusted Grimage was associated with a wide range of neurobiological correlates, including cognitive disinhibition and poorer memory recall. On slide 25, cardiometabolic pathology, that metabolic factor score. Slide 26, oxidative stress. Slide 27 shows that we found an association between age-adjusted Grimage and astrocytic damage, so a, a neuropathological biomarker. Uh, the next slide will show associations with various inflammatory markers, C-reactive protein, this marker of kind of chronic low-grade inflammation, uh, IL-6, a really well-known marker of inflammation. Slide 29 shows that we found associations between age-adjusted Grimage and immune functioning as measured by total white blood cell count. And then on slide 30, uh, that also shows that we found age-adjusted Grimage was associated with cortical thinning, and it was in the right lateral orbitofrontal cortex and the left fusiform gyrus. This is actually really cool because Another very recent study by a colleague of mine who does really fabulous work, Shema Katrin Lee, she's a, a fellow right now at Emory. She published a paper with her colleagues showing an association between 
age-adjusted GrimAge and cortical thinning in the same region. So that was just kind of a cool validation across uh, independent cohorts there. And this lateral, right lateral orbitofrontal cortex is a brain region associated with the regulation of emotion and threat detection. So make some conceptual sense here. I know that this is a busy slide, this slide 30, and that's really intentional on my part. It's not meant to overwhelm you, but rather to emphasize the point that this one DNA methylation-based biomarker was associated with a broad range of health-related outcomes and biomarkers of disease risk including those measured using the ultra-sensitive technology that allows for the detection of even extremely low concentrations of these health-related risk markers. So slide 31 shows you which of these biomarkers were measured using the SAMOA technology. And I'm actually realizing in this moment, I didn't include it in this talk, but we did have data on the Samoa markers across both cohorts. Um, they weren't the same markers in all cases, but those for which we did have two cohorts of data replicated. So that was really, really cool to see that GrimAge was associated with these health-related biomarkers um, of really early, early risk for disease, right? And that that was true in two independent samples. Uh, if you'll direct your attention to slide 32, these results contribute to a burgeoning literature suggesting a crucial role perhaps for grim age in the prediction of premature mortality. And our study in particular highlight the critical need for assessment of externalizing characteristics among trauma exposed samples. So there, we found associations between age-adjusted GrimAge and a range of externalizing constructs. So not just externalizing psychopathology, but also neurocognitive indices of behavioral disinhibition and also that frontal cortical thinning, both of which are, are highly associated with uh, externalizing characteristics. On slide 33, by using novel biomarker Samoa technology, this studies the first to detect some of the earliest neurobiological correlates of elevated mortality risk. And this is particularly notable given the sample in this study was pretty young. So the mean age uh, for the folks in the one cohort that we had most of the neurobiological data to kind of follow up and look at these validators, that mean age of that cohort was 32 years old. Um, so this suggests that assessing grim age may be particularly helpful among younger individuals uh, for whom there's really kind of a capacity to alter disease course through prevention and intervention efforts. So if you kind of catch it early on, you have more time to mitigate any long-term risks for health outcomes. Another important clinical consideration as we're kind of considering the results of this study is, you know, externalizing behavior in general tends to decrease with age. So early adulthood may be a particularly essential time for behavioral interventions that address externalizing psychopathology. And 
these types of interventions in early adulthood that target behavioral disinhibition, externalizing, may potentially kind of ameliorate long-term health consequences, even, you know, premature death. Looking at slide 34, there's some really cool, I was really excited about this and, and interested to follow up on this in my own line of work, but um, there's uh, existing research that shows that lifestyle interventions, in this case, particularly physical exercise, have been shown to reverse other DNA methylation-based metrics of biological aging. So the study cited here on slide 34 didn't look at grim age. I don't, I guess it had been calculated yet, but maybe not by the time they had run the analyses, but they were using other epigenetic clocks or other DNA methylation based um, algorithms for calculating biological age. And they found that uh, lifestyle intervention, physical exercise, not only slowed, but reversed the effects of biological aging. So on 35 here, we have the takeaway, which is that my hope is this study demonstrates how genomic biomarkers can be useful tools for identifying those at greatest risk for such high stakes health-related outcomes as premature death, right? That's kind of as high stakes as it gets if we're really thinking about it. Um, and so therefore my hope is that some of these genomic biomarkers would provide opportunities for disease treatment and with early identification, disease prevention. Replication among longitudinal and maybe age-varying cohorts would be necessary to address some questions related to generalizability and directionality, right? All of these analyses were cross-sectional. Um, I'd also be interested to see if and how the strength of the effects we found differ among populations that are not trauma exposed, as those included in this study, again, were both, they were two trauma exposed cohorts. And just broadly, follow-up research in this area will hopefully inform whether interventions that reduce externalizing behaviors alter the risk for shortened time to death and associated neurobiological consequences. On slide 36, I would just like to acknowledge my fabulous collaborators and mentors particularly Dr. Erica Wolf. I have an asterisk there by her name. This is my plug for her. She's just such a pioneer in the field of trauma-related biological aging and has a lot of really fantastic articles published demonstrating cross-sectional as well as longitudinal effects of PTSD and other stress-related psychopathology on accelerated cellular aging. But I could probably take an equal amount of time thanking my mentors and collaborators. So I'll end on slide 37 as if the pandemic has taught me nothing, it's people show up to these types of things for the animals. So here's a picture of my fur baby. And thank you so much, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. This is uh, really, this is so interesting in so many, you know, it can go in so many ways. So, um, um, so yeah, thank you. And um, 
I think this is also like this is a really interesting new tool for public health. I think do you do you think we will be able one day to have this like as a general check up maybe for people to you know under well like yearly check up do you think that would be a really great preventive tool i think that's a great thought and i think that if if there is replicated research and enough of it to suggest that this actually is a refined tool for risk as that least kind of in its infancy it's looking like then absolutely and I think just from like a public health kind of cost perspective, right? I mean, to get uh, someone's DNA genotyped used to be, would cost you an arm and a leg, right? And these days you can do it for about a thousand bucks a person, um, if not less. And so if that trend continues of it becoming more accessible financially to people, then absolutely, I think that could be something that we see in the potentially not too far future. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I also think, um, so is there a plan to do like really large data sets, let's say um, that you could in the future tell people, okay, this person with this profile, this intervention, would most likely be more helpful. Is there, you know, is there, you think, a potential in the future for us to have that, especially after trauma, um, but also in general? Um, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think, it, again, it's another really good question. And I, two things come to mind in response to it. One is you said, something about enough data or big enough data, right, to do that. And I think that's a really important point that you raised, especially when you're using um, genotypic data. Luckily, when you're using DNA methylation, um, you can often kind of combine across ancestries. So on like genotype data, you're not looking only within one ancestral group or another. They just can you can kind of get more effects with less, so to speak, than if you're running a, a GWAS or a genome-wide association analysis. That said, the bigger the better, and that's certainly true in the case of biological data where the effect sizes are really small. And so um, the psychiatric genomics group for PTSD, the PTSD-PGC, Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, has several kind of sub-working groups. One of those is for epigenetics, so DNA methylation and, and other types of epigenetic data and analyses. And some of the colleagues, uh, Dr. Katrin Leany, who I mentioned here, and some of the folks in my acknowledgments or who are even on this paper are really involved in that. And so for anyone who's not familiar, it's kind of what it sounds like, right? It's a consortium whereby people who have uh, genetic data available and have basically any data related to trauma or PTSD can contribute to the consortium. And so it's resulted in these collated data sets that are really well powered and have a huge, huge, huge sample sizes. So I think some, 
even maybe my postdoc mentor, Dr. Wolf, has done some of this work with PGC data. I'm not totally sure, but that would be a really cool and exciting use of the consortium is to look at these questions there. So there's that the big data that's important, right? And we're kind of starting to get to the point where we're at big data and we can use it. So let's get started kind of thing. But then the other point that you raised is tailoring interventions. And so, I mean, it's always a, it's like the thing where Thanksgiving's coming up and my family's like, what do you do? Like, why is that important? Like, what, how is that going to inform anything clinically, right? And you're like trying to think of like, hey, that's a really good point. How do we actually use this? So I, maybe a little bit of a pipe dream, but I think this study is a really perfect example of where that starts. So if someone comes into the clinic, whether it's a mental health clinic or to see their primary care or to see their cardiovascular doctor, whatever it is, and you give them an assessment or they're coming in with some sort of externalization, right? So they have substance use disorder, or maybe they are getting into a lot of bar fights or just having some sort of externalizing presentation. You might then eventually get to the point where you either kind of test their biological age or just say, hey, what we know is for folks who are presenting with some of the stuff you're presenting with, you might be at risk for dying earlier than you should. And one way to help mitigate that and treat that is, for example, just kind of back to slide 35, right, might be just engaging in more physical activity day to day. Like maybe a couple of runs or a couple of walks might, might slow that process down. Um, but this is literally the one study, at least by the time our paper came out, I was familiar with looking at interventions for some of this biological aging. But I think as that literature grows and we know more about, I just watched Dr. Longo's talk on here. Uh, oh, shucks, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe you can help me, Katerina. But it was such a great talk about um, basically intermittent fasting and, and the effects of nutrition on some of these same health biomarkers I've talked about today, that the more we know about how all these things intersect, we might be able to make clinical recommendations that can actually have quite an impact. Yeah, thank you. It was a uh, fasting mimicking diet reduces neuroinflammation. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thank to you. Me. Yeah, it's great. That was really, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I think it's such a great time that we are starting to understand it in a way that we can maybe hopefully soon actually make recommendations that are backed by actual you know facts not like before you should do this more or this less and then the next year we say the opposite and people <laughs> get confused right yeah like how flossing's <laughs> bad for you and then flossing's good for you there was exactly. like that whole thing a couple of years ago my dad's a dentist, so that was a conversation oh. <laughs> in our home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Nisten asked in the chat, and then I'll pass it on to others here on stage that are waiting very patiently. Thank you. Um, if this would be also interesting to um, look at Holocaust survivors, I'm not sure if we still can get oh. enough data, but maybe there's some data out there. And... Um, because there's kind of an interesting um, yeah. uh, 
paper that oh yeah this, uh, you're here so go ahead yeah by the way it's pretty funny that about 30 minutes ago in the medtech lobby room uh dr katherine johnson she was talking about the all the me uh, metabolic marker data and the glucose levels <laughs> that she looks at in her clinic uh to do precision medicine and now we're talking about how there's new research that affects all of those biomarkers so that, that's, that's amazing pretty, uh yeah and uh she was just there randomly it wasn't a, a topic room uh but yeah my uh, the reason i posted that link is that there was news in the past that uh, uh for example uh holocaust survivors uh and also people i've known uh myself just anecdotally from grandparents living in the balkans that uh yeah so there was actual data though that uh the survivors tended to live a lot longer after and uh whereas in the research now it shows how it affects uh, uh their health how trauma past trauma affects their health in in a negative way so uh, i was wondering uh, again, there's not enough data, but why could that that be? Maybe there are other factors like uh, either calorie restrictions or they mm -hmm. they tend to live a happier life because they're more in touch with their community and have larger families, et cetera. So yeah, I was wondering if you had any uh, anything on that. that uh, so this research says that, uh, well, shows, the, the data shows that uh, they, it affects the health negatively, but there's also some data apparently, I'm not sure, that shows that it, uh, they live longer. So I just wanted to know what you think about that. Yeah, I thank you. I appreciate the question. And I'm, I'm not familiar with the studies that show this kind of longer lifespan. So I'd be super interested to read that. And frankly, I think you probably came up with some really fabulous uh, theories for why that could be, and that that is even substantiated by some of the research that's out there. So um, we do know that, and I'm still getting, rolling up my sleeves and getting more familiar with trying to find some of this intervention literature that relates to this, but what you do sometimes find related to other markers of biological aging is like you said, calorie restriction. And so that can be a delicate line to walk, certainly, as even with PTSD and disordered eating, for example, highly, yeah. highly comorbid. Um, so it would probably have to be a very individualized, again, kind of person to person recommendation. Um, and but that is one theory I could imagine has some some meat on those bones. And then similarly, I mean, some of the other factors you mentioned, uh, like meaning making, I think is such a fabulous point and probably a really important one. I also can't help but wonder about other psychosocial factors, uh, like related to support. But so I don't know that that's a very refined answer to your great question. But I guess the other thing that comes to mind is what's so interesting about even everything I just presented on, right? The the really the infancy of this whole line of work has stemmed very broadly from those studies looking at intergenerational trauma, um, particularly in Holocaust populations. And so that's such important work. Um, and like people like Rachel Yehuda and and others who started some of the more kind of bio-based work related to trauma really started with Holocaust survivors. And so um, 
so yeah, it's certainly relevant. It's certainly important. And I'd be super fascinated. We've been talking about risk factors, but I'd be super fascinated to know more about what were the protective factors, even related to stress. Like I'm going on a tangent here and I won't keep talking, I promise. But the other point is, right, like moderate amounts of stress are actually really, really helpful. Um, they bolster resilience. Um, they're helpful from a mental and physical health perspective. I don't know that I would call the Holocaust moderate amounts, right? But it does make you kind of wonder about some resilience factors that might interact with trauma to, to really help someone out. Yeah, if I may add, I, I spend a little bit of time um, in resilience, Holocaust survivors data. And um, why I became interested was there was a study that showed that actually Holocaust survivors that lead like a successful life afterwards have actually lower cortisol levels than normal and also in the next generation that could be detected and I thought in that paper it was a pretty famous paper they discussed that you know that this is a kind of a trauma indicator but I kind of thought that this was more kind of a resilience indicator and that's why they survived this you know that you, that would also be you know, because millions didn't um so right. what are those factors and uh yeah i think it would be really interesting um to look into that and maybe they collected some dna samples uh where one can still go back and i don't know if there is some methylation data any studies but that would be really interesting and also then look into the next generations how long yeah how yes long absolutely presented um yeah i think that would be really fascinating and i looked more into the language data and what i found that um people that survived in in interviews they would always talk about we and not so much about i um so um which is a huge indicator for, you know, uh, the more depressed you are and so on and so forth, like mental health issues, you talk more about I, myself and so on. And they, uh, like you distance yourself from other people and, and those mm. interviews, they mostly talked about we, it happened to us, like we did this and so on. So, And interestingly, in soldier training, that's, uh, what people constantly are trained to, to not see themselves as an individual, but in a group. And then you have the difference in way more high occurrence of PTSD and firefighters that don't go through a training like that. So that's also interesting. So anyways, <laughs> let's continue with your talk. <laughs> and, uh, thank what? you, and Shami. Yeah, thank you. That was great. And this is um, what you just said, Katerina, did make me have a thought that I haven't really looked into at all, right? But I, uh, or rather kind of how these things may or may not work together. But uh, something that just came to mind that's kind of interesting is, um, and we just pu published a paper also this fall in clinical psych psychological science review, clinical science review. Oh, shit, Chucks, I should know what it is. Um, but this paper kind of talking about reconceptualizing the traumatic stress phenotype in general. Um, 
And one of the things that we talk about in that review is how actually a lot of resilience characteristics look a lot like certain externalizing behaviors, right? So there is, like, if you think about people in leadership positions or Navy SEALs or some of the military experiences you're talking about, um, through and through, you often see resilience indicators as people who are kind of higher in risk-taking um, and some of the kind of social gregariousness that you might find with other externalizing like maladaptive behaviors. And so I don't know, it's just a really interesting thing because we're, we're talking about resilience here and how that might be a mitigating factor. And yet a lot of resilience characteristics uh, are similar to those found in externalizing. So I'm, if anyone has thoughts, I'm interested, but it just kind of came to mind. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, resilience is really a word that's really badly defined, like just yes. and, and there are so many people thinking about different things, what resilience is. So yeah, maybe somebody has to write first, like defining resilience and then creating subtype category words. And then yes. we can... <laughs> we're, we're working on it a little bit and it's that paper. I, I'm, I'm not trying to plug myself here, but um, if anyone's interested, it's in Clinical Psychology Review, and it was just published a couple months ago, Reconceptualizing Traumatic Stress. Um, and so we talk a lot about resilience and some of the definitional issues there. I had a, a question, uh, and I'll have to go in a bit, uh, about the Simoa technology. Uh, I don't um, really... I'm not familiar with it or anything, and I don't understand the science and genetics and stuff, but I do work with medical data and I just have to provide the APIs, make sure they work and that it's anonymized whenever it needs to. So I just want to know, uh, how does this Simoa tech help your research versus what you were doing bef uh, before and uh, how were you um, using it? Yeah, I just want to know more about Simoa, basically. Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, it's actually really influenced my research quite a bit and where I want to take things in my own program of work. I mean, so like I said, a bit of most of my background is in behavioral genetics and in kind of genotypic data itself. So like the DNA we're born with, right? We're all born with DNA. It doesn't change. We have what we have. But um, thinking back to those Thanksgiving meals with family were like, okay, what, what, well, what are you doing? What's the importance here? When I started to work with a lot more of the Samoa data, I started to really see how these things can merge together kind of through the biological pipeline. So we all have DNA, but then like epigenetics, right? Things in our environment can influence that DNA, which can then influence its expression and the expression of DNA affects, you know, neurobiology, so which proteins are made, how they're made, et cetera, which then goes on to affect all these other factors that lead to disease and, and health issues. So inflammation, neuropathology, what have you. And so for me, the Samoa, uh, just working with like peripheral biomarkers uh, was much more of kind of a closer to what felt clinically informative and helpful in that pipeline. 
But I think the Samoa in particular, the, the big, um, the whole big thing with Samoa is this ability to measure them at such low levels. So again, it's only on fellowship that I started to work with any sort of peripheral biomarkers that weren't genetic. Um, but my understanding is that other bi like, so you might have IL-6, it's a biomarker of inflammation, right? And maybe it is um, measured using the typical type of technology, which is just like, you have to have a whole lot of inflammation for it to even pick up that it's there. Whereas a Samoa technology, it can pick up much, much lower levels. So it allows us to look at like a much broader range of people who might be at risk before we even know they're at risk. Like if, if measured in the original way, your IL-6 is high, it's like, okay, well, you clearly already have some sort of inflammatory disease. And I'm just, this is, I'm speaking kind of broadly here, right? But with Samoa technology, it's like, hey, we're starting to pick up these lower levels of inflammation that might indicate this person is at risk. And so now we have the ability and the opportunity to intervene before it turns into some sort of inflammatory disease. So um, please let me know if I didn't answer your question there, but that's a a little bit of how it's affected my, where I want to go with things, but also just how I see it kind of more broadly. Oh, go ahead, Mr. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, thank you. It's 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 pretty in interesting to to look at. Uh, I got it. So th they provide the actual data itself as well, and as well the tools for. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, Samoa is just this type of assay that's done by a company called Quanterix. Um, so Quanterix, like, will measure, I keep using the example of IL-6, but it can measure it the quote-unquote normal way, and it, or you could get it the Samoa technology, which is just like a different way it's assayed. So you'd still collect the data in your lab, send it off to Quanterix or for one of our cohorts, we did it in-house and had Quanterix people come to us to help us know how to assay it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a similar process. It's just different technology. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm looking them up. It looks like they have their own device and provide data for precision medicine. Okay, this is really cool. Thank you. Great, yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, thank you, and Dr. Shah. Thank you. I'm sorry for waiting so long. <laughs> so thank you so much. That was a wonderful talk and lots of good information. My question from you by considering because you had an emphasis for the PTSD. Mm -hmm. And we know that in a period of the time, I mean, during the researches, um, one of the influences that they have is memory loss and the ability to prediction, which they founded the effect of that in a dorsolateral or prefrontal cortex that you just mentioned. And I was just wondering, uh, some of the methods such as the stem cell therapy, that we have a new, I mean, revolution with the stem cell therapy, how it can help. Um, so, so sorry, would you be able, would you be willing to repeat your question? I'm just not sure I'm totally getting what the question is. So you. You you mentioned about the PTSD, and we know that one of the influences in a PTSD patient is uh, losing the control or the memory or the reduce the control of the memory 
right. in a prefrontal cortex. And we know that the methods such as the stem cell therapy that they are right now using for the PTSD, it can somehow combat with this uh, kind of problem. And I was just wondering if you want to consider your research and using that in a field of the stem cell therapy, how it might be helpful. Stem cell therapy? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, to be really frank, I am totally unfamiliar with that work. Um, so you've given me something interesting to look up. I'm, I'm totally naive to PTSD stem cell therapy interventions. I see. Yeah. I mean, that was my main question. Also, I mean, I was just wondering because you, uh, someone just mentioned about the Holocaust, those people mm -hmm. with the I mean, traumatizing from the terrorist attack and all of those things can be good samples for the research as well. I mean, if we don't want to back that much in time, I think that we have a very good samples around that we can uh, find out better information. That was just suggestion. Absolutely. Yes, that is the um, cognitive dissonance of being a trauma researcher, right, is for uh, new samples who are being traumatized, especially lately, it feels like. So I, I do agree that there are important populations we could be kind of collecting these data in now and studying. But yeah, thanks and, for that. I Yeah, and one more question. Comment. Thank you so much. And one more question that was about the interleukin-6 that you just mentioned, because we know it's a factor and marker. But however, we have a different kind of uh, factors like IL-10 or TNF and other kind of uh, uh, cytokines. And I was just wondering if you want to take a look on the data, are you look at the uh, portion or you, you, look, you compare the uh, two types of that or just going with one sample, how much IL-6, how you just validate that? Yeah, thank you. And I'm I'm realizing in this moment I wasn't very clear about this in our analytic plan. So what we did essentially was run a series of regressions wherein each kind of group of like outcomes were included within one model. Um, or let's see, actually what we did is we used a Monte Carlo simulation to control for the multiple testing across outcomes. But for example, we looked at all of the inflammation markers that we had. Um, so that included IL-10, that included TNF-alpha, and then we only reported on those that were significantly associated with GrimAge after correcting for testing across the various markers. And so it was uh, only IL-6 and CRP and eotaxin, which I guess is associated with kind of almost like allergy-related immune res uh, inflammatory responses that came up as statistically significant after correcting for multiple testing. But we did look at all the ones, all the markers that we had. And what was the average age of the participants? The average age of the participants for whom we were looking at these data was about 32. So it was a pretty young sample. Exactly. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the questions. Yeah, thank you so much for, um, yeah, for this talk and uh, for all the questions. I know we've been 
going on more than an hour. I hope it was okay. <laughs> and um, this was such an amazing discussion and talk. It's uh, really wonderful that you came. And I hope maybe you can you could come back in the future and talk about all the other topics. <laughs> Not all of them, but maybe next year you would join us again and talk about your work. It's so interesting. I'm really, you know, excited that you came and I will read your other papers. And um, yeah, uh, thank you. We really appreciate this. this was such a treat. Oh, thank you so much. That makes my whole day. And it's nice to know someone else thinks it's interesting besides me because I just think it's fascinating. So I, I really appreciate the invite. Be happy to come back. And um, it's been, I, I've enjoyed the questions and the points to consider for future work. So thank you so much. And I hope everyone enjoys their weekend. Yeah, I hope you enjoy your weekend too and the holidays. And yeah, I think it's really fascinating, especially looking into next generations and what will happen. I mean, this is wonderful and it affects so many people. So we wish you all the funding. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. Not, not, not altruistic at all. I mean, we all go through stress and we all want to be living healthy for a long time. So it's just... <laughs> Very selfish to wish you all the funding. <laughs> Thanks so much. Okay. Um, yeah. So thank you, everyone. I hope to hear you all back soon again. Thank you, Sage, and enjoy your weekend. And um, just a few announcements before I close the room. We will have on Monday Dr. Avril, and he looks into the microbiome of um, soil and different um, soil types and he will talk about the paper he wrote um, defending earth terrestrial microbiome because apparently it's in trouble especially in you know farmland um, and uh, modern pollution um, there's been apparently a change in the microbiome in the soil and uh, then we will have dr health coming uh, talking about cytoplasmic phase architecture of the nuclear pore and dr jakovic coexistence of modern humans and neanderthals he did the machine learning analysis of data and came that we actually interacted way more than we thought. Um, and maybe even how the decline of Neanderthals um, came out of that interaction. And then we'll have a room then the week after about black widow spiders and how they have such an amazing spatial memory, uh, which will be also really interesting. So. Looking forward to hear you all back soon. It's a little bit lighter program about around the holidays, but uh, yeah, will be still interesting. And uh, bye everyone. And thank you again, Sage. We really appreciate it. Bye, my pleasure. Take care. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you.